It's the day the two have been waiting for. You get up from your bed, almost jumping out because you can't wait to get the day started. It's field trip day. One of those great days where you and your friends don't have to sit at your desk all day and instead go see amazing sights, talk about cool stuff, and go back to your home to tell your family about what new things you have learned. You eat your breakfast hurriedly, practically pushing your parents out the door to get you to school. Today's field trip day, you say to them with delight. Today you and your friends are going to ride a gondola up the Dolomites. So exciting! You and your friends go all the way up high to the Cavalese gondola. You see that bright yellow metal box that will carry you from way up the mountain and down below the station. There's absolutely nothing that will ruin this day for you and your friends. Almost nothing. You're listening to Untimely, a podcast about events in earlier or recent history that resulted in untimely fatalities and damages in its wake. I'm your host, Lynn. Our episode today will cover two events from the same location, focusing on two different times that the town of Cavalisi, Italy, was the scene of tragic events. The first part goes back to the events of 1976, followed by the story of what happened 22 years later. Mont Sermi is a popular skiing area for many Europeans. It is located in the province of Trentino or Trento, Italy. If you imagine Italy as a boot with the heel facing left, Trento is at the top right of the cuff, 45 miles south of the Austrian border. One of Trento's towns is Cavalisi, host to one of the 12 world-class ski resorts at the Fiem Valley. The town of Cavalisi can be traced back to the Bronze Age and was established as a village during the 12th century. Later, the town became the vacation spot for bishops and nobles, which developed the town further. Nowadays, in the center of the town is a charming village center with cobbled streets surrounded by shops and restaurants. A church in honor of St. Sebastian can easily be spotted with its resounding bell tower. The Alps Hermes Ski Resort in Cavalisi, like the others, boasts of stunning views and amazing ski runs. In Cavalisi, there are 26 ski runs available to beginners as well as daredevil professionals. If you're not too keen on skiing, there's always skating, also available in Cavalisi year-round. To help skiers and visitors get to the top of the slopes, a cable car system was built in 1968. The cableway that supports the system is about 3 miles long. The cable car system had two routes that ascend to the height of 4,000 feet or 1,219 meters, and the other reaches up to the summit of Mount Sermi at 6,000 feet, or 1,829 meters. Many visitors and tourists use the cable car to enjoy the stunning 360-degree view of the Dolomites all year round. On the early evening of March 9, 1976, visitors of the Alps Sermi were getting ready to return to the Cavalisi Terminal Station. Among the passengers were a large group of skiers from Hamburg, Germany, and students on a field trip from Milan and Austria. 
The cable car's maximum capacity was 40 people, or 7,000 pounds. Up top, as the skiers, students, and tourists boarded the cable car, the 18-year-old lift operator counted 44 heads. Now, usually operators of the cable car follow the capacity limit, but on this day, the operator decided to bring everyone in. The reason? Since many of the passengers were children, the weight should offset the four extra bodies. The cable car and its passengers slowly made its descent to the station. The sight of the mountains blanketed with snow would visit. The sight of the snow-capped mountains was visible for miles. Another cable car from the opposite direction can be seen making its way up for the next batch of passengers. Suddenly, a loud boom echoed through the valley. It was then that one of the steel cables supporting the car snapped. Franca Scarion, a bar worker in the Cavalisi bar at the end of the station, was quoted to have said, I suddenly saw customers rush to the window. I looked up and saw the cable way loosening. The car swayed and crashed and the huge bar on its roof smashed down on top with an awful noise. Some of the cafe staff thought that a gas line exploded in the kitchen. In full view of everyone at the terminal, the cable car dropped over 600 feet down the mountainside and rolled another 900 feet into the clearing near the Avisio stream at the bottom. As the cable car settled down the meadow, a metal bar weighing three tons above the cable assembly fell on top of the car and crushed it with all its passengers inside. Later, the police said that the cable car almost made it to the terminal station. It was 600 feet short when it fell. Immediately, emergency services mobilized and started rescue operations. Rescuers used what they had to dig underneath the pile of metal heaps. On the ground, the scattered pieces of crushed yellow metal that used to enclose the cable car stained the white snow. Among the strands of metal are blotches of bright and dark red blood from the mangled bodies of the passengers. Rescuers called out for survivors. After hours of searching, 42 bodies were found. Later, the body of Fabio Rustia was added to the list. Signor Rustia was with his wife and two children when the cable car plunged the mountainside. Out of 44 people, only one person survived. 14-year-old Alessandra Piovesana from Milan, who was on a school field trip. She was immediately brought to the nearest hospital. 21 Germans, 11 Italians, 7 Austrians, and 1 French woman perished. A total of 43 lives were lost. Six months before the accident, the cables supporting the car were tested using weights exceeding the maximum. One of the cable waste engineers, Signor Tensini, stated during the investigation that there was no safety system in place at the time of the accident because the construction company did not consider the accident as possible and therefore it was switched off. The Falk Group, the Italian company which built the cables later, found grooves on the line that snapped and signs of heat abrasions due to the intense friction. Because of this, the cable snapped and entangled the two steel cables where one severed the other. 
the investigation concluded that faulty operation and maintenance caused the accident. Alessandra Piovesana, the only survivor of this ordeal, testified in court about her experience. A trial was held, and when the final verdict was handed down, four of the lift officials were held responsible and put in jail. Alessandra grew up to be a well-known journalist for the science magazine Air One. She has since passed away in 2009. To this day, the accident was said to be the worst cable car accident in the world. The Cavalese community mourned the tragedy and lives lost. Several safety precautions were established to make sure that this accident will never happen again. Then came 1998. Aviano Air Base is located in the northeastern town of Lipa in Italy. For many years, this base supported the NATO operations and hosts both U.S. and Italian military squadrons. Although it is mainly used by military personnel for combat operations, the base also functions as a resource for training, weather observations, intelligence planning, medical care support during world wars, and peacetime. In the late 1990s, Aviano Air Base was an integral location for the Balkan operations and modern electronic warfare. Multiple military planes soared among the hills and valleys of the Italian Alps, much to the annoyance of the local community. Because of the loud sound that jets make as it passed by, it caused homes to shake and make unnecessary deafening noises. A U.S. Marine Corps squadron named VMAQ-2 or Marine Tactical Electronic Warfare Squadron 2, was based in Aviano in 1996. The squadron's overall mission is to provide electronic warfare and intelligence support for U.S. Marine ground forces. In Aviano, VMAQ-2 supported Operations Decisive Endeavor and Deliberate with missions over Bosnia and Herzegovina in collaboration with both U.S. and British forces. The VMAQ-2 was issued with Prowler jets that were used to support all missions. Prowler jets are twin-engine aircraft that seats four, including the pilot. During downtime, Prowler jets were sanctioned by the NATO in collaboration with the Italian government to fly out of Aviano Air Base and perform training, maintenance, and other mission-critical tasks. Flight data is submitted to the Italian military the day before to provide flight information such as flight route, altitude, speed, time, distance, and crew members. This data is reviewed by all parties to verify that the plan is aligned with NATO agreements and to inform the Italian air traffic support staff. This process of submitting a flight plan was followed by Prowler Jet Pilot Captain Richard Ashby. His longtime navigator, Joseph Schweitzer, planned a flight to perform a reconnaissance mission to Bosnia, along with two other crew members, Captain Chandler Seagraves and Captain William Rainey. Captain Ashby, 31 years old, reported to Aviano Air Base in August of the year before. He has over 783 hours of flight experience and despite his age, was not a newbie nor a senior experienced pilot, but something in between. 
Him and his former crew received the Air Medal First Strike Flight Award for flight to support NATO intervention in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Since the Bosnian War ended three years before, they received an assignment that was more training and practice than an intelligence-gathering mission. The mission started on February 3, 1998. Around 2.35 in the afternoon local time, EZ-01, the call sign reserved for Ashby's flight crew, started their mission from Aviano Air Base. As do most VMAQ-2 planes, the aim of the training is to practice flying fast and flying low. The sky was clear and the weather conditions were optimal for this mission. As the crew made their way through the Italian Alps, around 3.07, it approached Lake Garda, a popular area for paragliders. The crew increased their altitude from a little under 900 feet, or 300 meters, which was the minimum flying altitude. In most cases, air traffic control from the base would contact the crew to let them know if they are flying on the wrong altitude or need to adjust. At this point, the crew did not hear anything from the base, which made them move forward with the plan. The next part of the route was Fiam Valley within the town of Cavalisi. The plane is now about 90 kilometers east of the airbase. About the same time, the ski resort in Cavalisi was busy taking skiers up and down the slopes of Mount Sermin. There were two cable cars in use. When one is filled from the top, ready to bring down the passengers to the station, another one climbs up to pick up the next batch. Since this is the height of ski season, each cable car was filled to capacity. At the top of the resort, 20 people climbed aboard the bright yellow car, including the operator. The doors closed and the operator engaged the lever to head down below. Up above the skies, EZ-01 was flying low within the Fiem Valley. This allowed Schweitzer to use his visual cues from the ground to follow their route. From their current position, one of his visual cues was a lake. As he looked down below, Suddenly, a flash of yellow appeared on his left. The flash of yellow was the cable car heading down from the ski resort in Cavalese. The jet was flying under the cable lines, which meant their altitude was way below 1,000 feet. Captain Ashby reacted to this sudden realization and banked the plane down and to the left to avoid the car, but this maneuver was too late. The plane's left wing hit the cable line supporting the car and severed it. As the 2 inches or 6 centimeter thick wire snapped because of the plane's wing, it sent the cable car tumbling down the snow-filled meadow below. It was about a 200 feet drop. The booming sound of the jet engine, the crash of the cable car down the ground, caused the townspeople of Cavalese to notice. Even though most are used to the noise of flying planes within the valley, this time, it sounded different. It was something they have never heard before. Emergency crews from the town quickly gathered and prepared for the worst. They quickly head to the valley, thinking that it was a plane crash. One firefighter recalls seeing the cable in the ground along with metal scraps and the unmistakable sight of patches of blood everywhere. In the air, the aircraft also had extensive damage. The crew looked to the right and saw that the jet's wing was almost split in half. Their hydraulics was damaged and Captain Ashby was having a hard time taking control of the aircraft. Two minutes after the accident, 
Schweitzer called Aviano Air Base for an emergency landing. The crew members worked hard and fast to get the plane back to base. Back in Cavalese, despite the quick response of firefighters, there was very little they can do given the nature of the crash. With the use of cranes, emergency responders slowly uncovered the grisly accident and lifted parts of the cable car. Firefighters worked day and night to recover the bodies. At this point, the firefighters realized that there were no survivors. All 20 passengers and the lift operator died. Eight people from Germany, five from Belgium, three from Italy, two from Poland, and one from Austria, and one from the Netherlands. Despite the damage to the Prowler jet, the crew of EZ-01 was able to land at Aviano minutes after the accident with damages to its wing and tail, leaking fuel, and hydraulic fluid. The crew was met by their superior officer, and that's when they found out the extent of what they had done. For the crew, the families of the passengers, and the townspeople of Cavalese, the nightmare had just begun. When the plane landed at Aviano, the crew was shaken and was in utter disbelief. The crew was well-experienced and obviously skilled. The two crew members, Captains Rainey and Chandler, disembarked the aircraft. As Captain Chandler looked back, he noticed that both Captains Ashby and Schweitzer were still in the cockpit in a heated discussion. This observation will be important in the investigation later. U.S. Ambassador Thomas Faliera visited the accident site and knelt down in prayer. He offered his apologies on behalf of the United States. Immediately following the accident, the U.S. Navy sent investigators to review what happened. While the Italian government did the same, the authority to lead the investigation was given to the United States, to the dismay and outrage of the townspeople of Cavalese and the Italian government. Then Italian Justice Minister Giovanni Flick announced that he would ask the U.S. to forfeit their right to lead any criminal proceedings. But the U.S. remained the lead. The reason behind it? Since the crew was a part of the NATO Joint Task Force, the jurisdiction belongs to the U.S. military. As you could imagine, this angered the Italian public and the rest of Europe. To appease both sides, the investigating team was made up of both U.S. and Italian military personnel. The investigation was led by General Michael DeLong, along with Italian colonels Orfeo Durigon and Fermo Miserino. This event became known as Strage del Sermi, or the Massacre at Sermi. The Italian public felt that the crew were showing off and performing unnecessary maneuvers. Even though the investigating team was a clear collaboration between the two countries, more outrage was felt by the Italians when it was found out that the four crew members will stand trial in the United States and not in the Italian courts. The official investigation by the team was shared and agreed with the Italian government. The investigation determined that the crew, led by Captain Ashby, was flying much lower than the allowed altitude and much faster, which put themselves and the public at great risk. The recommendation was to reprimand the crew members and that compensation is to be granted to the families of those who died. One thing to note is that when navigator Joseph Schweitzer planned the cruise route at a low altitude, he was unaware of the new directive of flying at a minimum of 2,000 feet. 
This means that Schweitzer based his flight plan on old documents. To make it worse, he submitted his flight plan and was reviewed and approved by airbase officials. But even though Schweitzer was unaware of the new altitude directive, the jet was flying below the cable lines, which was a definite no-no. A part of the investigation was to perform a psychological assessment of the crew. The findings were negative and that none of the crew members were involved in drugs or alcohol that would have affected their ability to complete the assignment. In the first trial, all four of the crew members were subjected to court-martial, but only Captain Ashby and Captain Schweitzer were actually brought in front of the military court. Captain Ashby's main defense was that he received old directives, which was the minimum altitude and speed restrictions that the jet's G-meter, the equipment that measures G-forces, malfunctioned and he was not able to accurately gauge the plane's height from the valley floor. In March 1999, the military handed down the judgment of the two officers. Captain Ashby was acquitted of all charges and Captain Schweitzer's charges were then dropped. This enraged many Italians and other Europeans and further strained the relationship between the United States and Italy. Months later, Captain Ashby and Schweitzer were once again called to face new charges. Not because the Italian government demanded a much harsher sentence, but due to newly discovered evidence. If you recall, Captain Chandler observed the two officers staying behind the plane's cockpit. Well, apparently Captain Chandler, once he was assured to receive immunity from further charges, reported that the two officers stayed behind to destroy the recordings from the camera that Schweitzer brought with him during the flight. Chandler's testimony was supported by another captain, Captain Seagraves, who also testified that days after the accident, Schweitzer asked him what to do with the recording of the flight in which Seagraves was quoted to say, Get rid of the videotape. If it were mine, I would get rid of it. It was found that Captain Schweitzer deliberately took the recording and later burned the evidence in a bonfire. Because of this new testimony, both Captain Ashby and Schweitzer were court-martialed and charged with obstruction of justice and conduct on becoming an officer and a gentleman, which resulted in a dishonorable dismissal from the military and left both without military benefits. In the end, only Captain Ashby went to jail for this accident. He was sentenced to six months in military prison, but only served four due to good behavior. In February 1999, the families of the victims each received monetary compensation of $65,000 immediately after the incident. In December of the same year, an additional $1.9 million per victim was given from both governments per NATO treaties. Despite the grim history of the ski resort in Cavalese, the town remains a popular place for tourists year-round. The gondola lifts are still there, carrying passengers up and down Mount Surmi. Nowadays, the gondola is replaced by a two-stage, eight-person-per-cabin lift instead of a larger cable car. The townspeople of Cavalese continue to heal from the tragedies that it has experienced. In 2001, an Italian author, Pino Loprofito wrote a book entitled What Cannot Be Said, The Story of Surmi, which was widely circulated and performed in theaters all over Italy. On the eve of this year's 21st anniversary, a monologue was performed at Palfiem di Cavalisi, the town's theater based on Loprofito's book. 
a plaque sits on a rock in Cavalese to commemorate the tragic events of 1976. Right beside it is another one with a eulogy written in four languages, Italian, German, Dutch, and Polish, representing the 20 people who died in the incident in 1998. The eulogy reads, To the everlasting memory of the 20 people transported by the cable car in Surmi, victims of reckless aviation maneuver occurred on 3 February 1998. Thank you for listening to this episode of Untimely. For more information about the podcast, comment about the episode, or suggest topics, follow us on Twitter at Untimely Podcast. We'd love to hear from you.